you know, every time something's built in California, it goes through this evaluation process. So it's like you're taking a project, like I'm interested in housing, right? So it's like, I'm seeing how this is happening. You know, who's, who's paying for it? You know, how do we evaluate um, how it's gonna affect the population or the water or the energy use? You know, what species are gonna be impacted? All these, these things, and it gives the public a platform with which to, you know, comment on and evaluate. That was musician and activist Patrick O'Malley. I'm Jeff, and this is Storied San Francisco. Every week on this podcast, you'll hear from musicians, bartenders, photographers, and San Franciscans from all walks of life, telling stories, sharing personal histories, and trying to put into words what makes this city so special. Welcome to episode 37, part two. In part one, Patrick talked about his arrival in San Francisco and his political awakening here. In this episode, he spends the first half of the podcast talking about politics, with an especially deep dive into housing, both in the city and statewide, and his own public transportation advocacy. In the second half, he talks about his music, which you can find if you search for Patrick O'Malley. And if you stick around after the outro of this episode, you'll hear a sample of his music. Here's Patrick. So then I decided it doesn't take you long, you know, getting up at four in the morning to realize, "Ah, maybe I should go back to school. (laughs) Uh, But at least why I had this opportunity. So I did go back to state and, but I decided when I went to state that I, uh, I didn't want to do music as my major. I wanted to try something else. So I looked into anthropology and social science and various other things that I felt tallied with my interests at the time. And I wound up in the humanities department. And it was, it was funny, like, uh, so I, my general sense of how these disciplines separated was not strong at the time. <laughs> you know, the difference between philosophy and humanities and all these things was not like... Were you of a, like... That sounds cool, because that was me. More, more or less, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. to be honest, it was kind of, I looked at classes, and oh, that sounds interesting. That And so I ended up taking a class, which was this when I first went back to school, which was so above my abilities at the time. And it was called uh, Derrida and the Jewish Tradition. And it was taught by uh, uh, Dr. Sandra Luft, who is brilliant and had a huge influence on my life. Um, so she, so I, I go to this class, and it's like, there's maybe 10 of us. Um, half of them are like doctors who are taking this, like, you know, people who are retired and are taking this just, you know, for intellectual stimulation. I haven't the slightest idea of like half the words people are using <laughs> in this class, but this guy, you know, so Derrida, you know, I mean, this is like, I mean, the heyday of postmodernism. And he was a very controversial figure in a lot of ways. And so this guy in this class, you know, she's lecturing on you know, objectivity and various other things. And this kid who was probably my age, like slams this book down and says like, so you're saying, you know, this, and you're saying blah, 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 relativity. And you're saying, and he's furious and he takes his books and gets up and leaves. And Dr. Luf is just like super cool. And she just kind of smiles and she's like, yeah, you know, that happens from time to time. (laughs) (laughs) That's what lets her know that her class is effective. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm like, oh, wow, that's awesome. I'm totally sticking with this. Totally. But Fun. yeah, it was tough. I mean, I audio recorded every lecture she did and I really like worked at that material to, cause I mean, catching up to where that was, 
you know, and it was a very tough class for me, but I learned so much within those. I took a number of classes with her. So I, in the humanities program, I took, um, yeah, so the Derrida class, I took postmodern criticism, um, uh, Nietzsche, Heidegger. So a lot of pretty dense, re, you know, authors. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was great. And I remember, uh, yeah, just so many ways that that changed, you know, my way of thinking. Um, yeah, and it, and it cleared out. You know, I didn't. You know, I didn't stay married to postmodernism forever. But like, what it did in sort of making me understand the way that people use language mm-hmm. was key. Yeah, you know that because a lot of times when we're arguing about stuff, we're arguing about words. Sounds like you you were really getting getting into critical thinking and yeah. learning what that means and different types of approaches. Absolutely, and you know, I thought for a while that that was kind of the route that I wanted to go. That I would like to do, be a you know, philosophy professor or a, you know, critical theory professor. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of, I, I got a lot from it, but it did kind of, it leads you to this, this problem that I think we're in, you know, for a lot of us who came out of culture, you know, you end up spending a lot of time arguing about culture and not time arguing about like power and money, property, these kind of things. Um, so I did want I wanted to, um, I didn't want to stay within that academic mold. I wanted something, and I wasn't really sure where that would lead me or even what the direction was. I thought that I would go into law. And keep in mind, I'm still like interested in, you know, I'm still writing songs and stuff, mm-hmm. but I had to figure out something to do during the day. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was, uh, I was working at a, I went to work at First Republic Bank. I was there for about five years, and I met a lot of good friends. Um, and I would, uh, I worked at the loan desk like after lunch and people would drop off their mortgage payments or whatever. So I had a lot of time to read stuff and to write lyrics. Mm-hmm. So like the first like full album I did in San Francisco, I basically wrote all those lyrics sitting From at the, the loan desk. Yeah. <laughs> <That's awesome. laughs> Just probably why there's a little of that in some of those songs. Um, but yeah, I was still, yeah. So I wanted to do music. I couldn't figure out how to make a living out of that. So what am I going to do? That's going to make a difference during the day. Um, so yeah, I, I thought about law school. I ended up doing uh, some paralegal classes, and I did eventually get a job for a little while at a law firm. Oh, okay, um, but uh, doing what type? Paralegal it was, they type were stuff. doing um, uh, election uh, campaign finance stuff. So basically, you know, um, they handled donations for donors. They would evaluate the laws on how much people were within. Uh, you know, their spending limits, that, mm-hmm. um, that sort of thing, and deal with those campaign finance laws. Um, and really, the one thing I learned from being there was that I did not want to be at a law firm. <laughs> <laughs> right. Thanks, but no thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that was not my route. Um, so, yeah, I left after that job. I ended up uh, working at where I work today, which is um, I do environmental consulting, and which is for someone like me, it's just an amazing. Um, amazing career because you're you know every time something's built in california it goes through this evaluation process so it's like you're taking a project like i'm interested in housing right so it's like i'm seeing how this is happening you know who's who's paying for it you know how do we evaluate um how it's going to affect the population or the Mm -hmm. water or the energy use you know what species are going to be impacted all these these things and it gives the public a platform with which to you know comment on and evaluate different projects so it's it's been great and i've learned a ton and that's where i've been working for my day job you know pretty much for a while how how long years at this point oh wow okay yeah 
Are you seeing any um, behind the scenes of how, especially with housing and, and other types Absolutely. of development, like, um, you know, how how laws are, are rewritten and or, you know, yeah. navigated or circum, you know. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, one of the big debates around housing in California right now is this idea that it's all about zoning. And as somebody who was very interested in new urbanism and that kind of stuff, like I definitely, you know, I read all those books when I was getting interested in this stuff and, you know, how, you know, different sections of cities are, you know, cut off for single family housing and for this. And so I was definitely aware to the ideas of zoning, um, how it's been misused now in California is that the idea that the problem with housing is that uh, zoning has prevented housing. And so one of the things that you do get to see in the type of work I do is who pays for housing, who buys housing, and who lives in housing. And part of this conversation that people aren't having is that cities don't create housing. Developers create housing. All cities can do is you know, change the criteria around which housing is built. And when you do that, you're essentially giving money or wealth. You have a piece of property. If you can build higher on that piece of property, you're endowing that piece of property with more wealth. Right. right? So that's all that cities can do. This acre versus this acre. Yeah, this exactly. One that builds more right. and higher is yeah. worth more money. Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, if you were a developer, you want to build as high as you possibly can and sell it for as much as you possibly can. Especially in a uh, very dense and defined, like there's no expanding San Francisco. Right. Yeah, exactly. Horizontally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. Right. Yeah. It can only go up. Mm -hmm. But the thing is that, you know, what gets built does not, um, if developers want to get as much as they can, you know, and the, the investors who back it, including pension funds in a lot of cases, you know, want to get the highest return, which means that they're going to build it for to sell at the highest rate, mm -hmm. which means that the only people who can own or use that property are people who can afford those rates. So other cities who have tried the just let people build model, like New York, was a disaster. So they built the 80-20s, basically 20% affordable, 80% market and, you know, so the result is New York has got a glut of market rate property that they can't hold tenants onto and a massive shortage of affordable housing. Um, you know, Vancouver has been building to keep up with the rate of population, but the prices keep going up. So what people are not getting is that the cost of housing is not a matter of supply and demand. Does San Francisco have a housing shortage? So that's an interesting question. Um, I've read anywhere between that there's 30,000 to 60,000 vacant units. Um, so Does that include uh, Pied-a-Terre's Airbnb? Or? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's including that. So like when you start breaking it down, it's like, are there more people than there are property? You know, and housing doesn't work as a supply and demand um, issue because you can always own more housing than you can use. You know, so nationally we have five vacant houses for every single homeless person. So we have a glut of housing. Uh, after 2008, when those mortgages went under, you know, big private equity firms bought up those properties, turned many of them into Airbnb or Zeus or all these other things that you and I haven't heard of, but are a similar model. And uh, as far as properties being sold to 
individuals or families, that's at an all-time low. So we're moving to a model where, you know, a handful of wealth management firms own the majority of the property. And, you know, if you make your money off of owning property, you're going to push towards laws that are going to allow more stuff to be built, right? And around here, I keep seeing Maven. I keep seeing um, yeah, a couple um, of... Are, are these at least maybe like fronts for the big... <laughs> Or like whatever companies. Some of them are property management firms. Got it. So the the people who are managing the property are often different than the people who own it. So and it's just but it's just two or three names that I'm seeing. Yeah. On all the properties. Yeah. yeah. And in other Bay Area cities, it's similar. You know, the gentrification argument is not. Well, a lot of people want to live here, and a lot of people are going to move away because people. Want, that's not what's happening. What's happening is when interest rates are zero, you know, big money real estate is a global it's a global business you know they're buying up farmland they're buying up big swaths of city they're buying up huge parts of africa you know interest rates are zero money is money flows into assets which is you know property stocks whatever and so they're buying that up that's what's driving the costs up so like what cities need to do instead of you know building more is they need to start Acquiring properties, which San Francisco is starting to do now, um, which is good. Uh, create community land trusts, so you keep property uh, permanently affordable. And quit, create uh, cooperatives and social housing. Um, so the ILWU created a number of cooperatives in San Francisco back in like the 30s and 40s. Um, that's an excellent model. Um, so that's what cities need to be doing rather than just... Because um, you're going to build big, empty cities. And if you go and look at Dogpatch and some of these other places, like, yeah, big, empty buildings. Mm-hmm. So I got um, involved in kind of uh, uh, public transportation advocacy, I don't know, probably about eight years ago, when I noticed that uh, m- much of what our public infrastructure, uh, a whole lot of it was being given away to private corporations. And it started with... Um, the Google bus situation. So when that, they call them shuttle buses, I guess. When that was started, they didn't go through environmental review at all. And there was a, a hearing about that, and which is absurd when you think of like, if a bike path goes through environmental review, you know, giant buses burning diesel going back and forth all day, that should probably be um, covered by that. But it wasn't. It was so... That program was created by um, a business advocacy group, you know, which includes, you know, big healthcare companies, big tech companies, big real estate. And they basically figured out a way that if you uh, create a busing program that is only for the extremely wealthy, you are not only going to remove certain parts of your population, but you are going to massively increase uh, property values. If you're a property owner, that's something that you want. Uh, so um, basically Spur started off during the, the era of uh, urban renewal. And about 1968, they created a uh, document called a call to action. And a call to action says that if San Francisco is going to compete with other big international cities for business, and this is, I'm almost quoting verbatimly, its population is going to have to be more white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. And they say that the way to do that is to change the quality of housing, jobs, um, education, various other things. So it was a population selection. And the shuttle bus program continues on that. 
Um, so like we were talking about earlier with Willie Brown saying, I want Main Street to compete with Third Street. That's part of that vision. So big parts of the city, including the African-American population who have you know, felt the brunt of this, were largely the victims of these programs. Um, so anyway, I got involved in transit advocacy when I started seeing this happen with giving away parking spots to Avis Rent-A-Car for the car share program. And there's nothing wrong with car share, uh, but it needs to be run in a way that is equitable and is not giving away public property to one of the largest you know, private rental car companies. So they, the city had did, uh, done some studies and they found that the people who are using these car shares are, you know, massively higher economic demographic. Uh, the city started pushing something called, you know, emerging mobilities. So I forgot the full name of the program, but basically all these things that provide transportation options pretty much only to wealthy people. And you see these expanding. So um, Chariot, when Chariot happened, you know, Chariot was a private bus system that did not take school kids, did not take senior citizens, did not take people in wheelchairs and charged three times as much as a Muni fare and then ran in the same routes that Muni ran. So, you know, essentially a, you know, a Jim Crow bus system. So I got involved um, trying to fight that permit program. Uh, so I would, you know, appear at city council he- hearings. I organized email campaigns. I wrote some op-eds. Um, yeah, and that kind of woke up, woke me up to what the city was doing in trying to take away our transit. And that's before Uber and, and Lyft? Around the same time. Or around the, yeah, when they yeah. were getting started. But, I mean, the ultimate goal of these companies is they know that, like, I mean, car ownership is decreasing. Uh, what they want to, and they, and, you know, as you see, if you live in the city, these cars driving around and are mapping the city for automated vehicles. So they know that as automated vehicles are coming, they just want to make sure that that's out of public hands and in the hands of a private transportation company that can charge whatever rates, exclude whatever people they want. Um, monopolies exactly for those reading yeah. at home <laughs> yeah and so i mean if you've seen these struggles that cities have gone through for the last 200 years it's been trying to get things out of the company town model and new urbanism neoliberalism has pushed us back into the company town model um so i'm happy to see people finally waking up to that and that like paying six dollars more to ride on a segregated bus does nothing for traffic and does you know nothing for our equity as a city and rideshare does the opposite for traffic it makes it was made it worse yeah exactly and rideshare has taken people who you know and i mean there's a lot of new residents in san francisco who public transportation is a frightening thing for them and they would rather dial up a, a car but under the medallion system with taxis at least people could hail a taxi and the city could regulate how many cars were on the road. You know, the ride shares went out of their way to go to Sacramento and get laws that basically, you know, stopped cities from making those choices. So if you've got, you know, if you take 30% or whatever it is that they take off the top of every ride and you don't have to pay for anybody's own, anybody's vehicle or, you know, then they just flood the cities with cars, which is exactly what they've done. Let's get back to music. Yeah. Your music. Yes. So the first, uh, so I formed a band called The Meek, which started out as kind of an acoustic, yeah, uh, acoustic three-piece 
and sort of very much along the lines of the band that I had with um, with Josh and Chris in Santa Barbara. You know, me on acoustic guitar, a bass player, and a guitar player, and the acoustic acting is kind of a snare drum sort of rhythm, and the songs were very, uh, um, I don't know, if you imagine like Ralph Nader meets Jacques Brel. <laughs> oh, easy. <laughs> yeah. So clearly, I mean, destined for stardom, right? <laughs> Uh, and you know they dealt with like you know issues of anonymity and loneliness and you know housing (laughs) right emo political Um, more or less yeah but you know in a different route i mean it was definitely uh you know i look at a lot of those songs and they're very there was definitely some more personal stuff but they're also very impersonal in ways but but yeah so i I, the meek we did a an ep um and then we uh, um, got a friend of ours to do drums, and we kind of turned it more towards a rock band kind of thing. And that's when we did um, A Whole Different Country, which was my first kind of full-length um, album, uh, which was, it was I don't know, probably recorded in like four days or something like that. Um, yeah, super fun. In studio or at a house? In a studio, um, Eric Walker's studio in Bernal Heights. So, um, yeah, and he's I've worked with him for years. He's He's an amazing musician and incredibly talented i remember recording that though like my 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 ear has grown a lot through recording and like you know he would be like you know uh oh what do you think about this reverb on the vocals and i'm like oh that sounds great in my mind i'm like the hell is reverb (laughs) (laughs) you know what what about this tail do you think that fades too yeah what what am i talking about like (laughs) but now you know but now you're doing yeah yeah but you know you do what a lot of bands do is you or many bands or kind of along my mind you you go into the studio and you're like i just want it our live sound yeah Yeah. and then you record it then you go like eh, it kind of sounds like a slime yeah yeah (laughs) so it took a little while for me to learn like yeah studio is not like that's not how it works there's things you can do there's things you could do and like so from that point on it was kind of like yeah get a good engineer and kind of listen to what they say and you know i'll do the things i do and let them do the things they do. You know. It's their art. Exactly. Their yeah. um, when would this, so this, uh, was it a whole different country? A whole different country, called? yeah. And when, when would this have been? A uh, whole different country was 2003, okay. I think, yeah. Okay. So there's definitely, some of the political aspects creep out in that album. There's there's a lot of sort of um, Bush era references in there. That, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so that, um, we did a, a, a number of shows promoting that and played at Amoeba and Bottom of the Hill. And we didn't, we never took it uh, nationally. We never toured or anything like that. But, uh, um, but yeah, I was pretty happy with that album. That's the yeah. me- this is still the Meek. This is still the Meek. Okay. And then, so as we kind of moved more in towards a you know kind of trying to be a straight up rock band, uh, we went through a number of name changes, and we were the Drones Club for a while, which is a a, a PG Woodhouse reference. It's a bad idea. I should never name things. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, and then we ended up being Trust, when so we did another album as Trust, which was more of a straight-up rock album, and that was also recorded here in San Francisco. Um, yeah, and then after that, uh, uh, and we worked together, I think, about 10 years at that point. Oh, wow. And then we kind of went our separate ways, and I ended up doing some more solo stuff. Um, yeah, so the immediate album after the Trust album, I wanted to get away from guitars and get away from the kind of me as a singer songwriter. And so I worked with uh, uh, this guy, Brian Hudgens, who did 
production. So I just basically, he would come over here, I'd give him a song and it's like, okay, here's a song. Now take me out of it (laughs) and I'll show up later and I will sing. So like you, and it ended up being a great combination. Like, Mm -hmm. um, help me hear the songs in a different way. Um, So, yeah. Okay. So, and so when would that have been? Uh, That was, I think that was 2011. Okay. Yeah. So we did an album called looking over. Um, And what was the name? Patrick O'Malley. That was Patrick O'Malley. Yeah. So when I went solo, it became Patrick O'Malley. So O'Malley is the original form of, you know, the Irish came over, you know, a lot of them changed their name, just like a lot of immigrants did. So it was originally O'Malley and became Maley. I don't know why they thought that sounded less Irish, but, you know. <laughs> Rhyme with daily. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Uh, but yeah, so I went back to that. Um, I had my, I have a cousin who lives in Sweden and he's a novelist and screenwriter. And I was talking to him about names and he's like, because, you know, he's, yeah you know, had the original form of the name and he's like, yeah, no one can remember it. And <laughs> it's hard no one to can pronounce. Remember O'Malley? No one can remember Maley. Maley, right. O'Malley right. is a lot easier for yeah. people to, it stays in people's mind. And, yeah. you know, you know, you, I would get Maley, Malay. Um, so it seemed like a logical thing to kind of go back to that name. And yeah. that's what, that's what I've used since. Okay. And so now since that time of, of going to Patrick O'Malley, oh, sorry, O'Malley, mm-hmm. Um, has it been, have you, is that how you've been performing yeah. and recording and writing and everything yeah. since then? So about eight or nine years or so? Yeah, about that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And what other kind of stuff have you done and where can people find your music? So um, my uh, last album is uh, released by Bottom Feeder Records, which is out of here in San Francisco. So it can be found at uh, bottomfeeder.com. You can also just uh, Google Patrick O'Malley. Um, so the last album is called Welcome to the End of the Empire. And it was great. It was more of a straight-up rock album. What are you talking about? You shouldn't name things. That's a great name. <laughs> yeah, you know, I th- you know, one out of five, you know. But uh, yeah, so this, yeah, this last album, I, um, I think you know, I got a great drummer, and we just, you know, kind of really made sort of the rock album I wanted to make. Uh, and then I spent probably as much time as I spent recording the album, writing the twenty-page like political essay which is on the inside so um so if you buy the actual album and you can contact bottom feeder for that then you get you know the all that wisdom (laughs) (laughs) which you you can write prose you just can't name things yeah (laughs) just kidding yeah it's like you know why say something in one word when you can use like 700 right (laughs) that was patrick o'malley check back next week when we'll hear from motivational speaker Uncle Damien. Music for the podcast is by Otis McDonald. Film photography is by Michelle Kilfeather. Find all 80-plus episodes on our website, storiedsf.com. And while you're there, you can also help support this project by going to our store page and checking out the different pledge levels. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to stay up to date on everything we do. If you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show for us. And if you have ideas of who should be on the show, our email is storiedsf at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. So I'll play you something from the 2003 uh, Meek album. This one's called The Contractor's Wife. 
The laughter that would finish in a coughing fit The embers from the cigarette she always lit Before the slow parade of after dinner drinks began A porch light serenade perhaps some uninvited friend did burn As the pages of a novel turn This life Another dinner with the contractor's wife How seamlessly tomorrow blends with yesterday You soon as meet the neighbors as they moved away with hanging plants to water and a game that's always on less reason to be bothered when you're watering your lawn it passed dropping ice into a whiskey glass this life another dinner with a contractor's wife Announce the final winner On the radio today You said yourself You thought it could be you If you found the numbers matched What would it do For you The sun is always shining there at four o'clock They're pulling into driveways all around the block With mail to be opened and some things to throw away Both of us have spoken now, there's nothing left to say So she will mix another drink for me this life another dinner with the contractor's wife